0: This is day 229 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Hebrews chapters 1 through 5. Lord Heavenly Father, you are so exalted. You are above all creation. You are above all angels, above all the splendors of the universe. You have created it all. Your fingertips display the work of your hands. We thank you, Lord, for creating the world around us, and a universe that is so vast, it's hard to fathom. Lord, you made the minute details of life, the microscopic world, the very fabric of reality itself. And Lord, you are so far above us and above all dominions that we don't even really understand, Lord, how vast this is. We don't understand what infinity is like because we are finite creatures. But we thank you, Lord, for speaking simply to us in a way that we can understand so that we can at least get a glimpse of who you are. And as we go into the book of Hebrews today, Lord, please give us a glimpse as to how great the Lord Jesus is. Please bless the reading of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. With the oil of gladness above your companions. And, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years. Will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more honor than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who are disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through Following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and that he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So I'm sure that we can tell from what we've read so far that the overall theme of the book of Hebrews is to explain and describe the superiority of Christ. And thus, if Christ is superior, then Christianity is superior. So we're going to see words quite often in here like better, perfect, or heavenly, that will describe the things that Jesus did compared to what anyone else could do. Now, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote it. Some people have some ideas as to who it could be, but we really don't know. So, as the theologian Origen said in the 3rd century, only God knows who wrote Hebrews. But praise God that we have it. It is so theologically dense. It is such a wellspring of wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is a, one of those books that heavily glorifies him, and I very much love that. We can tell by the writing style it's not Paul. I mean some people think it might be Paul later in his life, but there are so many things that seem to contradict that. And the manner in which he writes this is excellent his rhetorical prose and and style is top notch so whoever it is is likely somebody who has some kind of a formal education in writing this person seems to be extremely intelligent not saying that paul wasn't but his style was very distinct and this seems to be a different kind of style i love how in chapter 1 he just gets right down to business there's no greeting. There's no, I'm praying for you guys. Let me just tell you about Jesus Christ. I mean, that's getting straight to the point, and I love that. It describes how, in the first half of chapter 1, how Christ is superior because of the person that he is, being the second person of the Trinity. Like it says in verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory, being the Father. And the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So he is the light of the world, as he's described himself to be, right? He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation, meaning that, and Jesus said it as well, especially to Philip, how can you be with me and still ask to see the Father if you have seen me? You have seen the Father. I am God in the flesh. So if you understand who I am in the flesh, you'll understand the Lord in his spirit. Then it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power because he is sovereign. He is all-powerful, meaning he's omnipotent. And so he is also ruler of all things because he made all things. And it also confirms where he is. He's still sitting down at the right hand of God. And he's waiting for the time when he is going to come back and judge the world. In the meantime, he has obtained a name greater than the angels. And then he goes into a long reference of different scriptures throughout the Old Testament, where he references different areas, showing that when God said these things about, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. He wasn't referring to angels, and he wasn't referring to humans. He was referring to the Messiah, the one that came from God and is God. And so that's what he spends the rest of chapter 1 doing, to give that argument based on Scripture that had already been written. The last verse of chapter 1 summarizes what angels are for. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's us. So, angels exist to serve us from behind the scenes and to serve the Lord. So, very interesting how that plays out. So, that whole idea of having things like a guardian angel is true for having angels that are protecting you day to day, that's true. They are doing that behind the scenes. Chapter 2 goes into what Christ did in saving us and delivering us from Satan. He makes it very clear in verse 1 that we need to pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We need to fully have an understanding of who Jesus is. And because if we don't know who Jesus is, or we have doubts or reservations about who He is, and He is the source of our salvation, then as unsure as our faith is, our salvation is also unsure. It hangs in the balance because if Jesus is not who He said He is, then we are still in our sins. But if He is, then we have that proud confidence in him. Verses 2 and 3 kind of illustrate what I'm trying to say, because it says that if the word that was spoken was through angels and it proved to be able to be altered, how can we survive? How will we be able to endure judgment if our salvation is not secure? But What he's trying to say, though, is that the word that was spoken through the angels proved to be unalterable. You cannot change it. God is not changeable, therefore his word is not changeable. The second half of chapter 2 describes how Jesus humbled himself into a human form and through that was able to deliver us because he, being the author of all things, suffered death for us. And because he died on the cross for our sins, he is the perfecter of our salvation because of his sufferings. And he reminds us in verse 16 that he did not do this to angels. He did not die for angels, but he died for humanity. I've always found that very odd, how angels, when they sinned, they were cast out of heaven, right? But they didn't get a second chance like we do. But it's most likely because they were in the direct presence of God. They saw all of his glory, and they did not take him at face value. And that is the most insulting thing you could do, being in his direct presence and rejecting him even then. So there is no coming back from that. But instead, since we don't see God, and he has a divine purpose for us, he offers salvation to those who believe. So because of what he did for us, he has become our high priest. A merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to the things of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you remember what that word means? An acceptable substitute is the simplest way to describe it. It's deeper than that, but that's the simplified way to say it. An acceptable substitute. He was tempted just like we were. And because he was tempted, but without sin, then he's able to relate with us. He can understand our sufferings, and he's able to petition to the Father on our behalf. How beautiful that is. Now, as we can imagine by the name of the title of this epistle, that this was written to the Hebrews, meaning the Jewish people. So if we recall the Pharisees, for example... In how they claimed their authority, they always claimed their authority through the name of Moses. They claim to be disciples of Moses and followers of Moses, and they obey the law of Moses. But what chapter 3 describes is how Christ is superior to Moses. Therefore, he is worthy to be listened to far more than Moses in the law. The builder of all things is God, like it says in verse 4, and Jesus Christ is the Lord. So therefore, he is greater than all that. The second half of chapter 3 describes how Christ is the supreme object of faith, that we are to have all of our faith in him and him only. He warns us in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there is not any among you that has an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We need to make sure that we are not listening to the wrong voices. And as he's going to describe later, is the word of God is what keeps us safe and secure. We need to cling to the Lord. But we're not alone. We have each other. And that's why verse 13 is important. But encourage one another day by day, as long as it's still called today. So every day we are to encourage each other and edify each other in love so that we can pursue godliness without deviation or falling away. Then he reminds us at the end of chapter 3 why the Israelites came out of Egypt and were allowed to die in the wilderness. It's because for the 40 years that God was with these people in the desert, the older generation did not believe him. No matter what they saw, no matter how many supernatural acts they saw, no matter how many miracles they witnessed, none of it was enough for them to believe. So what does he conclude in verse 19? We see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So he's making this argument because it's talking about entering his rest. How do we enter into his rest? And that's what he goes into in chapter 4. How do we enter into that rest? Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. What is his rest then? It's it's salvation. It's the eternal rest. The peace of God that is beyond all understanding. And verse 2 reinforces the point that I've made about How atheists cannot be saved if they just read the Bible. Look what it says. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. So there's a lot of people in the world who have heard the gospel and have not responded to it. But what is the problem? But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. There was no faith in what they heard. Therefore, it was ineffective. You need both. It's almost like a chemical reaction, if you will. If you have one element that combines with another element, it will create an explosive compound. But separate, they are harmless, right? Until they are mixed together, then you have something volatile. It's the same thing with the gospel. If you have the gospel and there's no faith, then it's going to be useless to you. But if you have the gospel with faith, it's going to explode. Not only in your own self, but also in the world around you. That's why I think you can hear the Word of God, you can be at church all your life, you can read the Bible and not be changed by any of that, because there's no faith. Your unbelief is what has prevented you from being saved. Praise God that faith is a gift of God, and that salvation is chosen by him and not us. Otherwise, no one would be saved, right? But there is still hope, even despite the fact that the world is full of unbelief. There is a cure for unbelief. He tells us what to do here in verse 12. Get the word of God. For the word of God is living and active And sharper than any two edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. This is an interesting statement. Why is there a difference between soul and spirit? I find it interesting that the Bible creates a distinction between the two, as if the soul and the spirit are not the same thing. So here's my estimation as to what I think this means. I think as human beings, there are three aspects of what makes us a complete person. We have our bodies, right, that we have in common with all the rest of creation. We have a physical form, right? Then we have a soul. Now, the soul is the same thing that the animal kingdom has. Because you can have two different dogs, right? They look exactly the same, but yet their personalities are different. The things they like and dislike are different. Their behaviors are different, even if they're in the same environment. So how can there be a distinction between these two animals if they're both dogs? Certainly, there is something that is in that dog that makes it different from the other dog. And so I think that is what we tend to call personality. The thing that we have built into us from birth that makes us part of who we are our fundamental self, if you will. I think that is the soul that is being referenced here. Now, that is the end of the animal kingdom. We have something beyond that, and that is a spirit. Because the animal kingdom and plants and the things of this earth don't go into eternity. They don't have the ability to enter into eternal rest like we do. But because God is spirit, and we are made in God's image, we also possess a spirit. And that is what goes into eternity with us. Somehow our personalities are going to be preserved, and I'm not sure about our memories or anything like that, but we ourselves will be preserved, and we will be changed, and then we will enjoy God forever and ever. That is the Eternal aspect of us, our spirit. We do have a temporal body, and our personality is given to us by birth, but our spirit is eternal. It's eternal in heaven, or it's eternal in hell. There is no destruction of the spirit once it's been made. A spirit simply cannot stop existing any longer. So the Word of God is living and active, it is alive. It is timeless. It is eternal, just like God. And it actively works in the hearts and minds of people. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts straight down to the point. It removes all the baloney and goes straight to the heart of matters. And it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart because the Holy Spirit convicts us through the Word of God. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. No one can hide. God sees all things plainly. Light and darkness mean nothing to him. So we can try and hide. We can have secret sins. We can deceive everyone. But you cannot deceive God. He knows exactly who you are, even if you don't really know who you are. And because. Jesus Christ is God. He is our great high priest who's able to not only understand where we've come from, but because he has been tempted, then he understands our temptation, and he's able to give us an escape. And so because of this confidence we have in him, we have the ability to approach the throne of grace, go straight to the throne of God and petition, and to request, and to mediate for others, we have that ability to go straight to our Father's throne, and that's amazing. And then in chapter 5, it talks about the priesthood in more detail, and that's going to go on for quite a while, but this is more of the introductory statements on what it means for Christ to be our great high priest and then he's compared to someone in particular, Melchizedek. We'll get to him later, but if you remember from the book of Genesis who he was, he was a man who was a priest-king. He was the priest of the high God, which is our Lord, and he was also king of Salem, which is the city that was predating Jerusalem. Salem, Jerusalem, it's the same place. It's just earlier in the timeline. And we don't have a beginning, we don't have an end for him, and you're going to see Jesus compared to Melchizedek, and that's going to go in great detail tomorrow. But because of who Jesus is and what he did, he is qualified to be our great high priest, despite not even being a Levite. That's what's interesting, is because... Of God's law, it was always supposed to be the Levites that was supposed to be the high priest and performing the priestly duties. But if we recall, Jesus was born of the line of Judah. So how can a person of the tribe of Judah serve as a great high priest? Well, he's going to go into much more detail in that in the chapters to come. All he's telling us to do is obey Jesus. Jesus Christ, because he is our great high priest. He earned it by doing what he did on earth and since eternity past. So as we go into the next couple of days, let's make sure that we submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. and We need to open our hearts to understand him better. I think it will change the way we look at the world around us if we were to do that. Lastly. Do not be like the people at the end of chapter 5. There are many people who have heard the word of God for a very long time. And because of the amount of exposure that they've had, and the amount of knowledge that has been thrown at them, they ought to be teachers by now. But there are some people who don't even have the basics. I am so surprised often how people that I know have been in church for decades, don't understand the basics, even though they hear it all the time. This is what he's referring to here as the difference between milk and solid food. Milk is for babies. Milk is for those who are not mature. And so, in many ways, our spiritual maturity is different from our age. And so many times we have people who are older, but they are spiritual babies because they understand little of the things of God, whether by God's design or their choice. And most of the time it's that, that they just choose not to understand. In my case, there are some people that I know within my church that they think they've got it all figured out. They don't have to crack open their Bible once, they already have made their opinions and they're stuck with that. I mean, that's not how we do it. We need to come into God's presence with a spirit of humility and ready to receive more knowledge. Age is just a number. It doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. You're supposed to be wiser as you get older, but some people just get into their heads that, I've already got it figured out, I'm setting my ways, I refuse to listen to any other opinion, and that's wrong. Unless your opinion is steadfast in the Lord, then stick with that, please. But in this case, solid food is for the mature. And if you have this maturity, you will not only be able to discern good from evil much better, you'll be much more sensitive to God's calling, but secondly is you get there by practicing, it says. Who, because of practice, have their senses trained? How do you practice eating solid food? It's the same stuff every time, ladies and gentlemen. Read the Word of God and pray and live a righteous life. You do those three things and you will get there, but you have to do all three of those things, not just live righteously That's what religious people do, but those people are empty in their religion. You need to have religion with relationship and with genuineness. If you don't have those three things together, then you're wasting your time. You won't grow. You won't mature, because you're either seeing religion as an object and just a list of rules to follow, which is what the Jewish people struggle with. Or we see God as a being that deserves and expects to be obeyed and worshipped, and spoken to, and prayed to. There's a big difference, and we need to make sure that we are doing everything that he has told us to do. Make him number one as he deserves to be. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.